0: Welcome to the Business Podcast, where we interview professionals across all industries. Hey, it's Simon. Welcome back. Today we have Jeff Sweetman, President and CEO of Franchise Makeovers, a strategic franchise advisory firm. Jeff, it's great to have you here with us today. How are you? Well, it's great to be here.
1: Thank you very much, Simon.
0: Absolutely. Perhaps you can kick us off and tell us a little bit about yourself. Maybe share some things that most people might not know about you.
1: Well, sure. So I've been in the franchising space since, gosh, 1987. And I started with Subway as a franchise consultant back in the day where there weren't really that many Subways. So, for example, I worked for their development office in Los Angeles County. At the time, they had 60 locations. Right now, they have about almost 800 locations just in LA County alone. So it's grown quite a bit. So I was at the very, very beginning of when Subway was beginning to grow. And my main job really was to open stores and inspect stores. So I opened on average about one and a half stores a month. And I usually had 25 to 30 stores to uh, inspect. As the the market grew, I was progressively promoted up to vice president of operations for um, that market. And in that role, um, I basically oversaw all of the daily functions, uh, business functions uh, of the company. Uh, One thing that's um, unusual about how Subway franchises, they have a master franchise model And what they do is they license development agents across the country to develop markets for them. It was a way for them to be able to scale growth really rapidly. And so these development agents have a lot of license. They have a lot of responsibility for virtually every aspect of the franchise uh, business, Um, but they also have have a lot of responsibility and they're also given an awful lot of freedom, at least in those days, to innovate. And many of the ideas that you see at Subway today, and actually in the industry today, came from innovation uh, and Subway in the Los Angeles market. And as an example, I'll give you um, the seasoned breads that you see at Subway. Um, That actually came about because we had a lot of competition in the area. We had um, Quiznos coming in, we had a regional brand named Togos coming in, everybody just offered white and wheat and we got together with the franchisees we figured how can we differentiate ourselves we come up with a way to basically have a lot of different kind of flavors of bread we tested them in several stores sales shot up double digits in every test store and it went across the market went across the dma and now of course you've seen them in all of the subways probably, probably since the mid 90s um, So I was there um, uh, until about 2002. And then after that, I went to work for Duncan Brands. I worked for the um, uh, Togo's uh, sandwich division of Dunkin' Brands, a competitor of of Subway. And um, at the time, the brand had suffered seven consecutive years of of sales decline and closures. And um, so I was hired in as part of a, a new leadership team to turn the brand around, and we did. In less than three years, uh, we increased uh, sales more than 20.1%. Uh, we dramatically increased franchisee profitability, dramatically increased uh, guest experience scores. Matter of fact, we did such a great job that they sold us <laughs> to a private equity firm, uh, Mainsail Capital. And uh, so I stayed working with them as director of operations for them. And, uh, and then we had the recession in 2008 and 2009 and we had to turn the brand around again which we did so i was involved with two turnarounds there Um, from there i did the complete sandwich trifecta when i went to go work for quiznos and uh quiznos i was hired as the regional vice president for the western division of quiznos Uh, at one point quiznos had more than 5,000 stores domestically Um, When I started with them in 2013, they were down to 2,200 stores. Ouch. And my Western region, we had 550 stores, and it was the worst performing of all the markets. And so I was responsible for all franchise operations in the market um, and local store marketing. And uh, in about six months, we turned that region around from being the worst performing to be the best performing. And then after the COO um, left to go to Arby's, I was promoted to executive vice president for Quiznos out of the home office in Denver. And during that time, uh, we launched a promotion which actually created the highest net um, increase in sales uh, for the company in over five years. Um, But then the company filed bankruptcy in in late 2000, um, was it late 2014? And uh, they eliminated about 50% of the jobs at Quiznos and, and my job was eliminated. So I went to go work for Yogurtland. I was, I was vice president of operations for Yogurtland. And um, so Yogurtland is a self-serve uh, yogurt concept. Um, it was actually the pioneer of self-serve yogurt and um, was, primary, it was national brand based primarily in Southern California. I was hired there because the founder of the company had let go of all of his senior management and middle management team. He just did not believe that they were following his vision of what he had for the brand, uh, which was quite a unique vision. And I hope I have a few minutes to talk about that because I have never in my life worked for somebody as inspirational and unusual as the founder of Yogurtland. He really changed my life, to be quite frank with you. And um, so I was hired to rebuild the culture, rebuild the organization and rebuild trust with the franchisees and we did. So um, I hired a whole new executive and middle management team. Um, I worked together with the franchisees for the on a franchise advisory council. We worked together on a lot of key initiatives, marketing initiatives. We brought in a new POS system. We brought in a new distributor uh, together. We brought in ice cream um, together and so Um, I remember after a year, the uh, founder said he wanted me to take over the company. But I did such a good job, I guess, of hiring great executives that he decided to stay there. So um, I went to go work for another company called Fujisan. Um, So Fujisan, what Fujisan does uh, is they franchise sushi bars in grocery stores across the country. Now, most of the time when you go to a grocery store and you see the sushi there, you think it at the end of the deli counter, you think that that's the grocery store sushi. But it's not. It's usually contracted out either to a franchise company or another independent company who um, prepares the, uh, the sushi there. So um, I worked for Fujisan, which had about 275 locations at the time in Sam's Clubs and other regional uh, supermarkets across the country. And I was hired to scale the brand from 275 units to 800 units in three years. Wow. And um, we were struggling to open, we never had a problem with real estate, but we were struggling internally, operationally, to be able to scale up to that kind of uh, amount of uh, store openings. But we created the infrastructure, and I created the team, where we were able to get up from opening eight stores a month to, believe it or not, 15 to 16 stores a month. So our run rate was on a path to be able to get to 800 uh, in the course of three years, And we also reversed sales declines. The company had been down 5% a year for the prior two years. And in my first actually five months, we were up 5%. I was there for about a year. And at that time, I decided to go into my own business as a consultant. And uh, uh, I started Franchise Makeovers, LLC. And uh, one of my clients actually happens to be a competitor of uh, Fujisan. They had kind of the same issue and uh, with scaling uh, growth. And so again, as I created the infrastructure and uh, the resources to be able to scale growth there, they were actually only opening up 10 to 12 maybe a year. And uh, in last year alone, they opened up over a hundred and they have a runway of another 145 in the year ahead. And um, so currently I'm working with uh, three or four other clients right now. Again, it's it's a mix of startups high-growth brands, and
0: turnarounds. Does that help? Absolutely. Well, first off, thanks for such a detailed and unique story that you shared so far. Absolutely, please tell us more about uh, your experience with the founder of Yogurtland. But uh, I just wanted to make a quick comment. It seems like I'm, I'm noticing a pattern, a common theme around what you've said throughout your experience and that's the strength of execution you know you talked about how you hired so well the the leadership wanted to stay how you ramped up results in such a quick fashion and you helped turn around scenarios so maybe you could talk a little bit about that you know your perspectives on execution and maybe then jump into the yogurt land uh, experience with the founder
1: yeah, I, so yeah, I'll start with execution there. So um, uh, when I started at Duncan Brands, um, they had all of their directors um, read a book called Good to Great. And if anybody of you have not read this book, you need to read this book, because basically it is a roadmap on how to go from good to great in organizations. So they had done a, um, Jim Collins wrote the book, and he had done a research study on all of the Fortune 500 companies that have had sustained growth and he found that there was a certain recipe that all of them follow and one of them the first one is to make sure that you've got a servant leader which we did at Togo's Uh, best leader I've ever worked with in my life his name is Robert Rodriguez and he taught me a lot which I'd love to be able to share what he taught me as well but after you have a servant leader they say it's people first right strategy second so in every organization where I've gone in, the first thing I do is I look to see, do I have the right people on the right place in the bus? And if I, have to, if I do not have people who can support the vision of the company, you have to make your cuts quick or you have to repurpose them someplace else because they are, they're gonna be an anchor that are gonna keep you from achieving your vision. There's only so much you can do individually. really it's your people who have to be able to support what you're doing out there in the field so in all of these organizations that i've talked to you about where i've been able to turn things around it started with making sure i had the right people on board to be able to do that Um, so that was that was number one number two is that also when i was at duncan brands um, i remember um, attending a workshop from a gentleman named ram sharon and ram sharon Wrote a book called Execution. And it was one of the most brilliant um conferences I've ever been to. And I took voracious notes. And then I, I actually bought a book written by um one of his proteges, uh Sean Covey. And if that name sounds familiar, Covey, yes, it's uh, the son of Stephen Covey, and it's called The Four Disciplines of Execution. And I have been using that um ever since about how to, how to, um, how to execute uh, in, in any brand that, that you're with. Um, I think the real key though to, to having execution is to getting people on board with you. And people have to be able to trust you because especially when you're in the business, in the franchising business, um, you're not in a position of control. You're in a position of influence and influence is a function of trust. And so how do you create trust in, in the franchise community? Well, trust is a function of three things. One is that people have to believe that you want to do the right thing. Number two, they have to believe that you can do the right thing, that you have the capabilities and the authority to do the right thing. And number three, that you actually do the right thing. So whenever I started in a brand, I would all, this has been my playbook for the past five brands I've been with is I hit the field and I visit as many, if not all of the franchise locations that I can to develop a relationship with every single franchisee and preferably their managers as well. And what I do as I learned from Duncan Brands is I listen and I learn to find find out um, what it is their needs are. And often what I find out is that for most franchisees, it's not big things that they need, it's a lot of little things where that, that maybe people in the company haven't paid attention to so much. So I try to pay attention to it. So whatever I can do to be able to provide them what they need, as soon as I leave that um, location, I do it. And I take also voracious notes about them, about their family, about their backgrounds and what they're passionate about, et cetera, because I wanna create a really positive relationship with these, with these people. I also share with them what I believe in During those initial meetings, because by listening to them shows them that I do care, and number two, and by sharing with them what I believe in, I think they really do believe that I want to do the right thing. I want to make sure that they believe I want to do the right thing. And then I try and deliver on what it is that they need to show them that I'm actually capable of doing the right thing and then I actually follow up and do it. and so. that creates a tremendous amount of trust in the franchise community that, hey, maybe this guy really does care about us and wants to do the right thing here. And then I think they're more willing to want to follow you. But that's not enough, is I think that the job of the, one of the jobs of the franchisor is to create the conditions that enable great ideas to come from anywhere, particularly the franchise community. I remember when I was working at um, Subway, one of the most profound lessons I ever got was from a franchisee named Al Mode. Al Mode was a former district manager for McDonald's. And I opened his first Subway uh, in Bellflower, California and he and I became really good friends. Um, And uh, after a few months of working with him, He pulled me aside and he says, Jeff, I see you that you're really frustrated because you don't think that franchisees are following what you and the company think we should be doing to increase sales and increase profits and and the customer experience. You have it all wrong because the franchisees want the same thing that you want but they don't want you to keep pushing them on it. You need to create a pull with them. You need to create the conditions where all of these ideas come from them And then he shared with me that most of the great ideas from McDonald's, like the Big Mac um, and the Egg McMuffin came from franchisees. He shared with me that as a district manager, he did the same thing. He had all of his franchisees, he he brought them all together into meetings, into little market meetings. And during those meetings, they would share what each other is doing. So he created a best practices culture. And then he also said, wouldn't it be great if we leveraged our resources together Against the competition, that it's much more effective to fight against the competition working together as a market than it is for to do it individually. You know, certainly McDonald's National is doing their job, but locally, that's our responsibility to do that. So that he leveraged the economies of scale of his franchisees in a given market to really drive the business. Well, at the same time, I was reading a book of Ken Blanchard called Gung Ho. And um, basically, the theme of that is that all of us are smarter than each of us. And it was a real aha moment for me, because I realized that I didn't have to keep pushing this rock uphill to push franchisees to do what we wanted them to do. I I could create a pull with them. So i started to create these market meetings starting with one in the southwest area of la county where al mode was and he and i developed the very first co-op meeting of franchisees in in subway and it was a best practices session and i measured success by if at the very end of the meeting the franchisees would say when's the next meeting if they said that then it was a successful meeting so we shared best practices I share with them how each of their stores are doing compared to everybody else because they didn't have that information. And then we started talking about what could we do as a group to be able to push um, drive sales in southwestern LA. And they all agreed to do a couple marketing things and invest together to be able to do it. The meeting was scheduled to go for an hour and a half. It actually went on for over three hours. We were still talking in the parking lot afterwards. And the franchisees asked afterwards, when can we have another one? So that meeting was successful. I have done that with every organization now since the past 30 years, I've been doing that. And it's been incredibly successful. Is creating these market meetings with franchisees together, where they are the ones who help put together, working alongside the company, we collaborate on plans to drive the KPI, the same KPIs that the company has, same store sales, franchisee profitability, the guest experience, et cetera. We're all working together in concert and I don't have to keep pushing them. And that was one of the major ways that we were able to get um, increased sales at Subway to a point where our average unit volumes were the highest in all the regions in Subway in the United States. We had the highest same store sales increases. We had the highest average franchisee profitability and we had the highest guest experience scores for 15 consecutive years. 15 consecutive years. It wasn't that I did it, the franchisees did it. They worked with us, we collaborated together with them. So I took that same model and I did the same thing at, at Togo's. And uh, again, we at Togo's, we were down seven consecutive years in sales, it was a far worse situation than we ever had at Subway, but down seven consecutive years. And uh, within, I would say within nine months, um, we were able to turn starting to turn things around again by by having franchisees working together with us on on strategies to to drive sales. I did the same thing at Quiznos I did the same actually I had a cup of coffee at a veterinary company. I, I worked five months uh, in between Duncan brands and um, Quiznos where I was the senior director for um, National Veterinary Associates, which is the largest privately owned veterinary hospital company in the country. And I was in charge of 45 um, veterinary hospitals. Even in the veterinary industry, it worked. Was I brought managing doctors together to share best practices and figure out how could we improve uh, patient care in a given market. And by doing that, it drove revenue there. So, um, and again, from there, then I went on to Yogurtland. We did the very same thing at Yogurtland. And again, it's been a very, very successful uh, game plan um, ever since.
0: Well, Jeff, congrats on that teamwork mindset that has led to all of that success. Looking back on your experience, what would you say has been some of the toughest professional experiences that you've had? I think the most
1: difficult one was the transition to the veterinary industry, to be honest with you. Um, Because I had been in, Well, probably two, one was from managing stores, company stores, and then going into franchising and having to make the adjustment to um, not being in a position of control, but one of influence. But the other one major one was I I completely switched industries. And one of the things that I remember when I first was interviewing with the CEO at National Veterinary Associates, Greg Hartman, I, I asked him, I said, I said, Greg, are you outside your mind? why are you even talking to somebody from the restaurant business? I have no veterinary medicine background. He said, that's why I'm talking to you. We got a lot of people who know about veterinary medicine, but we need people who know about how to operate a business and how to interact with the public and how to locally market. That's what you know how to do. That's what we need more of. And I thought, wow, I am really a fish out of water here. And so when I first started to have these market meetings with, um, with managing doctors uh, in different markets, um, I would start talking to them about sales, but what we can do to increase revenue. And, and they looked at me with these blank stares, like, what are you talking about? And I learned that, that these doctors don't define success the same way that we do in the restaurant business. They define success by the care of their patients. Matter of fact, that's one reason why um, National Veterinary Associates exists, is because m- most veterinarians don't know how to manage a business. They don't think of business in those terms. That's why NVA does that. Um, so, I, what I had to do was, I had to translate everything that we were trying to do as an organization to increase revenue as a way to increase patient care. So for example, we were trying to sell these wellness programs, it's a package. So a, a client with a pet, we would encourage them to buy these packages where you would get um, you know, all your vaccinations, you'd get your wellness visits, you would get uh, dental checkups, uh, et cetera. You pay one price and it, it covers you for the, for the entire year. And um, our, our doctors did not wanna sell these. And it's kind of weird. I mean, it would be kind of like having McDonald's not want to sell meal deals. But that's the way it was. They didn't want to sell them because they just thought it was, you know, increasing sales was not important to them. So I had to kind of flip the script on them a little bit and saying, the reason we want to do this is to make sure that they are compliant, that our our patients are compliant with their vaccinations and provide better care for them because we know that if they have dental visits and they they get all their vaccinations and these wellness visits, that they will live a longer and healthier life. Well, boom, then the switch went off in them. And then we had, they were um, advocates for this program. So that was a difficult transition for me during the first uh, couple of months that I was there. I would say that for sure.
0: So Jeff, I can imagine with all this varied experience throughout the years, in the franchising space, you must have come across a couple of um, unique individuals. I know, as you mentioned, um, the, the founder of um, Yogurtland had been um, an influence on yourself. Maybe you could speak a little bit about those who've had an influence on you.
1: Yes, um, so I'll give you three because I think that they there's a progression to it. And uh, the first one uh, was the vice president of operations at, at Subway Um, I had just started as a franchise consultant and she spent a month out with me to train me on how to do inspections of stores. And she was extremely tough. She had incredibly high standards and she demanded excellence from uh, her franchise. I had never worked with anybody who was so demanding uh, with franchisees before in my life. And so after the month had passed, and uh, I, I actually took over her portfolio of stores so that she could do her vice president job. Um, I went and I thought that, you know, I wanna develop good relationships with these franchisees. So one of the ways that I could do that is when I go into the stores and I see some things that may be wrong, maybe I'll help fix them while I'm there. Um, maybe I'll just focus on those areas that are the most critical and not so much some of the other areas because people can only do so much and i don't want people to think that i'm as demanding as she was because boy they really criticized her a lot and so i want to be seen as a little bit more caring a little bit more um, balanced than than she was so um, at the end of every week after i had completed my inspections you had to put them on uh, her desk and so Um, At the end of one week, she looked through the inspections and she pulled one out and she said, Jeff, she said, I I noticed this location right here. Um, When you and I went to it just a few weeks ago, uh, this person got a score of uh, 57 out of 100 and he was out of compliance in like five or six areas. And yet on your inspection that you just did, he's got like an 85% score and he's only out of compliance in one area. How did that happen? I said, well, the franchise, she stopped me. She said, you know what, Jeff, I want to see for myself. So we hopped in her car, we drove to that location, we walked around, had had my inspection in hand, we walked around and she said to me, Jeff, um, does this inspection look like this store? And I said, no, it really doesn't. And she said, does it look like the inspection that you and I did several weeks back? I said, yeah. So he really hasn't improved at all. I said, no, not really. He said, "Why, why are you doing that? And I said, because I'm trying to create a good relationship with this job, with this person. She said, I believe that. I really do believe that. But you do realize that you're not helping him. If you really care about somebody, you tell them the truth and you demand excellence so they can be the best person and the best operator they can be. You really care about your franchisees, don't you, Jeff? I said, I I sure do. She says, that's why I hired you, Jeff, because I know you do. Start telling the truth. That's how you show how much you care. Changed my life. That changed not only how I treated my franchisees, it also changed how I approached my children which is to always tell people the truth, which is to always demand excellence of everybody. And you, you're not, you know, don't enable people by, by not um, demanding excellence. So um, I was known as having actually the even higher standards than my vice president had, but it was all because I cared so much for my franchisees. So, um, so that was a lesson that I learned and I taught all of my, I've taught all of my franchise consultants ever since. And I think that's one reason why uh, we had the highest scores for guest satisfaction for 15 years at Subway. So that was one mentor. The second mentor that I had, his name was Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez is, is uh, the best leader I have ever worked for. He was the brand officer for Togo's. So again, Togo's was the um, sandwich um, uh, concept for Duncan Brands. And it, um, it had been going through seven consecutive years of decline and I needed to figure out a way of, of, of turning it around. Well, shortly after I started, we had our annual Christmas party uh, at Disneyland Hotel. And I, I got there early and he was in the bar with me. He was in the bar and I, I approached him and I said, hey, Robert, and we chatted for a little bit. And I said, you know, I, I said, we have so much to do to turn these franchisees around. I just want to get some words of wisdom for you about what it is I need to do. And he says to me, well, let me show you something, Jeff. So um, so I was sitting across from him and he put like, the, I think it was like the, the napkin, the, you know, it was kind of like the centerpiece of the table. And he, and he said, what I want you to do, Jeff, is I want you to push it toward me. And I said, well, this is kind of weird. <laughs> this is the brand officer of Togo's telling me to push the centerpiece toward him. So I, I said, okay. So I pushed it at him. And then he said, I want you to pull it and, I, and so I pulled it. He said, what takes more energy? I said, well, pushing. He said, exactly, lesson over. So the lesson he was trying to teach me was it takes a lot more energy to push your franchi- franchisees than it does to create a pull and that your job as a franchisor is to always create a pull so that they want more of what you have to offer, is to serve them so well that they can't wait for you to come to their stores. They can't wait for you to come up with your next idea. And that was, that was really game-changing for me. And then the, the third mentor that I had was Philip Chang. Philip Chang is uh, one of the most unusual, amazing individuals I've ever met in my entire life. So he's the founder and CEO of Yogurtland. Yogurtland has about 350 self-serve yogurt um, bars um, all over the country. And he had just let go of all of his uh, executive team and middle management team. And um, I was interviewing for a vice president of operations for him. And I asked him, as he, you know, we, we went through the interview. And of course, at the very end, he asked me if I have any questions I said, Sure. I said, how do you define success? Now, I was expecting him to say something like, well, it's defined by, you know, we, we open 600 stores in the next three years. It's defined by having 800,000 average unit volume, a franchisee EBITDA of this or corporate EBITDA of that. I mean that's pretty normal. No, he said, Jeff, I don't measure success by numbers. I measure success by when everyone in the organization from me all the way out to the frontline team members is practicing servant leadership. When everybody is doing that, that is success and the numbers will come. And I thought to myself, you know, I've only heard three people in my lifetime who talk like that. One of them uh, was Sam Walton. Another one was Dan Cathy from Chick-fil-A and the other one was Walt Disney. You take care of your people, you take care of your customers, the business takes care of itself. I I have never heard that from anybody else. And Philip Chang is on the level of those kind of people who think like that. And so again, another life-changing experience where I started being very conscious of everything I said and everything I did was to practice servant leadership. And to make sure that I was listening, learning, serving everybody that I could and um, and delivering happiness along the way to everybody. And so um, I'm very conscious of that now, even today, of doing that with everybody, not just in work, but also at home. So those were the probably the three most uh, impactful mentors that I've had
0: in my career. In this fairly recent experience you've had doing consulting, what have been some of your most unique success stories?
1: Yeah, I think the most unique one was um, with Fujisan because um, again, it was a completely different industry. Fujisan is really consumer packaged goods inside of a supermarket. That's not, I guess there are some similarities with quick service restaurants, but um, uh, there was no challenge with real estate. Matter of fact, we had a runway of real estate. The challenge there was finding chefs to be able to work in them. So it's a very unusual workforce because these franchisees are almost 90% Burmese. They're first generation Burmese people who learn how to make sushi back in Burma or Myanmar. And then they come here um, and then they get jobs working in these supermarkets uh, making sushi. They have very little education. They have very little business knowledge. And so it was just a very unique situation. And, uh, and you don't pay very much to get in. It's very low cost of entry. Um, but they basically bought themselves a job. And um, what I found was you know, was that the, um, the way we had the infrastructure set up Within Fujisan, again, we were struggling to open maybe eight stores a year because and part of the reason was that they were only planning maybe two months ahead of time to get um, Stores open. So I think the major change that we well, some of the major changes I made there one was to lengthen the runway Like in most franchises, you know, you're you're planning your openings a year, sometimes 18 months in advance. So I did the same thing here was we planned our runway um, about six to nine months in advance. We had the real estate there. We didn't have to worry about that. It was just getting the franchisees um, and the health permit all set up. So instead of at the last minute waiting to get franchisees and health permits, I said, no, I wanna make sure that we've got signed franchisees and we've got a health permit at least two to three months before we open this store. So that was a a complete change in mindset there. So by doing that, we were able to extend the runway now. So instead of opening eight stores, we were now prepared to be able to open um, 12 to 15 stores. But the two other things that I did, one was um, there was a lesson that I, I, I learned back when I was with Subway, which was you don't schedule for the business that you're doing, you schedule for the business you want to do. So we only had enough trainers to open up eight stores. So it was a gating factor. So I was able to influence the CEO to allow us to be able to hire more trainers so that we could open 12 to 15. Matter of fact, I think when I left there, we had enough trainers there to be open up to 20 stores per year. And uh, so that's a really critical lesson is to make sure that you've got enough people to be able to support that. And again, plan for the business that you want to do. And then the sales will chase that or the openings will chase your capabilities there. And then the third thing I did uh, was something I mentioned earlier was to, was about people, making sure you got the right people on the bus. So I had two franchise salespeople that had one of them had not sold a franchise in three months, had sold two franchises in six months. And I said, why are you even here? <laughs> you know, so I, I, I put him on a personal development program and within a, a month he sold another one, but it was not, um, it's not what we needed to have. So I repurposed him. I actually put them in a training role and I hired another, actually I hired two more franchise salespeople that were tremendous. So now um, instead of getting maybe a, a few uh, franchisees per month, now we were getting up to 20 signed franchisees a month which is exactly what we needed to do. So I think those are probably the three key things in a very unusual industry uh, that I did with Fujisan.
0: Absolutely. And uh, again, congrats on that creative thinking, that vision. It's interesting that um, when you were working with with corporates directly, uh, you had this operational role, but a lot of it seems to have been, in order to be successful, quite strategic in nature, thinking ahead and really aligning with senior leadership to help yeah. them see the next horizon when they might not have. Yes, and now transitioning to your consulting, whereby you're really serving as an advisor. What would you say are some elements that are, I guess, similar but, but also different?
1: Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, I think, um, I think one of the things that's very similar is the focus on process. Um, many of these, uh, particularly the well, certainly startups and even um, high growth brands. What I find is that they often do not have the detailed workflows and processes that make the business work. I kind of look at it like a, um, uh, think of your anatomy, right? Is that, you know, your, you um, you gotta have the right skeletal structure, which is your organizational structure, right? So that's number one. But you know, then you got to have your circulatory system that where the, the blood and the um, oxygen run through. That's your systems and processes. And so I think one of the things that I've been able to borrow from my past and into franchising, i mean, into this consulting role, is the really focus on building very detailed uh, workflows. So, so for example, in, for one company, I have, uh, engineered very detailed workflows for how to open a store, you know, from the time that you get, um, you take over the premises to actually three months after you take over the store, what is the critical flow and who does what, and what is the timeline for all of that? And how do you make sure that everybody is doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing what is the cadence of accountability what are the tools that you're using to be able to ensure that every the critical path is being followed Uh, for another organization um, i'm i'm focusing on the franchise sales part of it where i built the 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 critical flow for franchise sales so actually beginning beginning with actually what is the unique value proposition that you're selling and what's your script when you are selling to it, to them? So I created that actually for, for one brand, and um, and then from you know what are the different uh, sources that you can that you can get franchisees from, and the time that you first start talking to a lead, you know what are the things you're supposed you know what is the lead profile, um, what are the questions you're supposed to ask, what are the answers that you want to get, um, uh, etc. And then uh, you know, all the way down the line, you know, what are all the milestones that have to be completed in, before a franchisee gets approved? And um, again, especially for startups and for emerging brands, I find that as a consultant role, um, I've had to get much more granular about what each, what each person does and how they interact with each other. And it's all gotta be documented and you need a franchise um, CRM management system that can make sure that everybody is on time. So for example, one of the systems, the system I most often used is FranConnect. And FranConnect helps us, helps everybody make sure that they are um, aligned uh, and doing things
0: on time that they should be doing. To add to that, you you mentioned a technology right there. I can see technology being very relevant right now as the world is being really entering the the new normal and opening up again. What would you say are some trends, particularly in the franchising space, that are unique that um, they're experiencing right now? Uh, let me start with real estate intelligence.
1: Um, you know, back in the day when I was with Subway, uh, In many respects, we were kind of throwing darts at a dartboard, trying to figure out what were the best sites for us. We would just drive around neighborhoods and uh, or work with brokers and try and find the right location. But we really didn't know. There was no science about this. This is like baseball right um, before Moneyball. Um, But I'm going to tell you, technology has gotten to a very almost scary place now, (laughs) which is a great thing, actually, for in the franchise world so that um, you know, nowadays um, you can work with companies that what they'll do is they will draw a geofence around your existing locations and they're gonna know who visits your locations and where they live or where they work. And then knowing you know, those rooftops, um, they can then do analytics to figure out exactly all of the, everything about these people. That's why I say it's scary is that there's so much that information that, they, that, uh, these, um, that, that people know about us based on where we live, about all of our buying patterns, um, everything about us. And um, so basically what these companies do is they draw a geofence. They figure out where, they're, where they live. And then, um, based on those rooftops, and then they create a franchisee profile, uh, a demographic and psychographic profile, to figure out who are the critical user groups, right? So they'll figure out what are the five or six critical user groups that, those are your core um, uh, customers. And it's important for two reasons. It's important for real estate because once they know, once you know what your customer profile is, then you can overlay that onto a map into other new markets and say, based on this profile, here's the trade areas that you should be in. And they've even gotten it down to such a science, they can even tell you what um, intersections you, you can be at. They can tell you what co-tenants you should be in, what size of shopping center you should be in, what the square footage you should have, uh, the ingress and egress. And, and I mean, it's really amazing how much science there is now. It's really, it's tremendous analytics. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Anybody who is in franchising that is not using a real estate intelligence company is you're really robbing yourself of, of critical critical information. It's been my experience that the two biggest drivers of success in franchising is number one is your site and number two is your operator. But I'm going to tell you the site is orders of magnitude more important than the operator because you can have a great site and a great site can save a bad operator. It can make a bad operator look good. But a great operator cannot make a bad location look good. So location is absolutely critical. And um, I use that kind of uh, real estate intelligence at Yogurtland when we entered new markets in Texas. And when we did a kind of a fill-in strategy in Southern California. And I'm I'm currently using it with another client that I have um, right now. But it is important not only from a real estate perspective but also from a marketing perspective. Because now, instead of sending out 10,000 flyers or uh, mailers to just the 10,000 in this uh, zip code, you can target it to your customer profile, to the specific rooftops um, that are your customers. And that's incredibly more powerful. When we did that at Yogurtland, um, we had double digit sales increases. Double digit sales increases because we targeted who our core user groups were. It's very, 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 very important um, to be using that kind of real estate uh, intelligence. the other one that I was gonna, was gonna mention also is about um, uh, artificial intelligence. As a matter of fact, I, I was in a couple of workshops last week where they were talking about how companies are using machine learning and AI to automate many of their um, franchising processes because so much of that right now is manually done by people and it can be done actually virtually by um, uh, you know, using uh, AI. And um, I think that is really cutting edge. And what that does is then you can shift your resources away from a lot of those human processes more towards building your business.
0: You know, that's quite insightful. Artificial intelligence, machine learning and real estate intelligence. Can I add As one you, more
1: thing if you don't mind in there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: so one of the things I also learned at Yogurtland. so for years and years and years, you know, being in the restaurant business for a long time, my whole family works at Disneyland. I have always had this um, belief that what most customers want is, is to be, um, get this kind of above and beyond level of service you know, that you get like when you go to Chick-fil-A or In-N-Out Burger or um, Starbucks or well, some Starbucks, um, uh, but you know, um, or Disneyland or Walt Disney World near you, right? And that's really, really what customers want. And what I learned through my research, and there's a great book I've written about this called uh, The Effortless Experience, um, is that's not what drives loyalty is that customer satisfaction does not drive loyalty or evangelism. It's all about simplifying the guest experience, an effortless experience. That's what drives it, is that most people and an increasing number of people don't wanna have to do a lot of work when they go someplace or something. So uh, we, we learned this at Yogurtland when we were interviewing people um, about what it was is it that uh, they wanted, what, what did they love about yogurt land? And do you believe they actually said because we don't have to talk to anybody. So you could, you could literally come into a yogurt land, fill your cup in, put your toppings on there, and the way we had it, you could self-pay. You don't have to talk to anybody. They love it. So I learned that people want an effortless experience. And I think that what COVID has probably taught us and what's coming out of COVID there's gonna be a lot more um, self-driven experiences where people have much more control over their experience in a restaurant. That, they want that more. And it's actually across all um, age groups because you might think, well, maybe the older people don't want that as much. Well, that's not true. It's actually increasing among all age groups and it's amplified during COVID. So it makes you think post-COVID, you know, companies have to start thinking about what is it you're going to do to um, remove effort from, um, from your customers. And it could be everything from you know, like the self- the, the kiosks that like McDonald's and a lot of people have now. Um, but so you don't have to even talk to anybody. And you've even seen now um, what are the companies? El Pollo Loco, there's another, I think it's Domino's, is now doing drones, drone delivery. So again, you don't have to talk to anybody. I think that this is a wave. This is the way consumers have been going and that, uh, that uh, COVID is just um, amplifying it
0: moving forward. You know, to add to that, something that's really important these days and, and you mentioned it, it's that customer experience. How involved have you been with your current clients in enhancing that experience?
1: Um, To be frank with you, not very. Not very. Um, Primarily because uh, we we want the customer experience to be the display case. We want that to do all the communication. Primarily because the chefs um, don't speak English very well. And uh, we don't want, and, and they're very shy because of that. So, we, we can't count on them to give a great experience. We, we just, you know, we're willing to walk away from that there. So, what we try to do is use the display case to really communicate who we are as a brand. Um, and any messaging that's done is done at the display case. I, you know, I, I would tell you that the best experience that I had in um, uh, transforming a guest experience was when I was with um, Togo's. And it really did have a um, material impact on revenue, Um, because uh, this was a time when we were again. It was in 2008 and 9 when we were going through a recession. And uh, you know, at one time, when uh, when um, all the sandwich brands were all the attribute uh, ratings were compared across, you know, Subway, Quiznos, Togos, Blimpies, other sandwich chains, Togos used to be at the top. In almost everything um, service, quality of food, value for the money, cleanliness, et cetera. By the time I worked there, they were now near the bottom. It was very, very sad for me to see. And um, I remember when we were doing a recession, there was a franchisee named Dan Pearson who said, You know, we really have to get back to our heritage of great service. And um, he said, It really needs to come, though, from the bottom up. It can't be something that's top down. So he reached out to me and he said, Jeff, can you help us with this? I said, sure. So, um, what, I, so what I did was I um, contracted with a lady named Barbara Glanz. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Barbara Glanz, but she's a wonderful consultant. And uh, she talks a lot about the uh, uh, customer experience and, uh, and has a great video called Johnny the Bagger. And I would encourage any, you can get it, you can download it off the internet, go just um, Google Johnny the Bagger, have your team watch that. And if they are not inspired to give higher quality service, then there's something wrong with them because it brings a tear to most people's eyes when they see that video. But um, basically it's a story of a, of a young boy who has Down syndrome, who works at a grocery store and tried to figure out what he could do to make a difference for all of the shoppers that came into the store. So what he decided to do was to write little personal sayings on sheets of paper, little pieces of paper, um, just sayings, really nice sayings. And then he would drop it inside of their shopping bags. And so that you know when they unloaded all their shopping bags, they'd see this message from Johnny. And it would touch so many people that people wanted to get into Johnny's line and but it also inspired other people in the grocery store that wanted to do something special for their customers so for example if they were in the flower shop um, and they had some flowers maybe that were damaged what they would do is they would take those flowers and they would um, give them to the ladies the elderly ladies that were in the shop Um, it was really 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 wonderful story but anyway Um, So what I did was I went to every market across California. Togo's was a California regional chain. And I went to every market, Orange County, um, San Diego, Sacramento, San Francisco, San Jose, etc. And I brought into this group, um, the best managers in those particular areas. And I would ask them a lot of questions about you know, what kind of company do you want to work for? What kind of company would you be proud to work for? What kind of service would you like to get from other people? And what is the kind of service that you would be proud to give to your customers that come in? And from all of that was we created a new vision and mission for Togo's that came from employees. And um, so the, the, the vision was, was to be the best loved sandwich shop um, in your neighborhood. And the mission was to make Togo's the best part of your day. So they felt that was something that the frontline team members could put their arms around. This came from them. This did not come from me. So imagine the power of this, that you've got managers that work day in and day out at these Togo's and many of them had been there for like five to 10 years working in these stores, right? And then what they do is they got in front of the franchisees in their markets and said, this is what we wanna do guys. Franchisees would give them standing ovations, standing ovations to these managers. And we, and we sent them to other parts of, the, of California to send the same kind of message. And as a result of that, we were able to change the culture of the organization. But, and of course, so then we started to have these meetings with assistant managers, franchisees, and team members across the brand. We showed them the Johnny the Bagger video. We shared with them our vision, our mission, and then we gave them some examples of some things that you could do inside your Togo's to make it the best part of somebody's day. But we're not going to tell you what to do because it's got to come from your heart think of what you can do with every customer that comes into your store, that comes from you individually to make Togo's the best part of their day. So what some people would do as an example was that if it was raining, they might take an umbrella and go outside and bring people in, um, especially elderly people, um, by putting umbrellas over them. Uh, This one lady when it was um, Valentine's Day What she would do is that she would mark on the bag, to-go bag, she put a big heart and say "made with loving care by Julie." But they would be doing things like this every day, and then we created a blog, where uh, an online blog where everybody could share all of their stories about what it is that they were doing in their location. So the ideas were just flying back and forth between different stores about what they were doing. And this is something I'm going to tell you that the biggest change that happens in franchise locations is it probably does in any retail establishment, is with the frontline team members. If you can get them involved, that is the winner. That's, I'm telling you right now, that is the holy grail because, and that's why I think it's really important for franchisors to go go as deep as you can inside of an organization to really make change. It's to try and influence, not just the franchisees and their managers, but the frontline team members, because really they're the ones that prepare the food and interact with the guests.
0: Jeff, it's been a pleasure hearing your experiences so far, and um, really, these insights uh, have have uh, brought about some some new ideas in terms of how to approach franchises. So, I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Until sir. we speak, yeah. Uh, until we speak again, perhaps you can share a parting thought that that would be nice for people to uh, part ways with for now.
1: Yeah, I think what I would just say is I think the most important quality of any franchisor is humility. You don't have to be right. You don't have to have all the answers. The best ideas come from franchisees and the operators in the store. And your role as a franchisor is to create the conditions that enable those ideas to flourish. I think that's probably the best advice I could give to any franchisor or franchise organization. Absolutely. Thank you so
0: much, Jeff. And definitely looking forward to speaking again soon. Thank you, Emi. Thanks for attending the Business Podcast and stay tuned for more episodes.